Many thanks to those of you who are here early this morning uh, praying for this church. We appreciate your prayers very, very much. And I thank you for coming, for gathering together before the service and praying. Uh, that is at the very core of who we are. We need it desperately. And I ask for all of you to continue to pray for the ministry of Chapel Hill Church. Well, we are nearing the end of our study of the book of Ephesians, and sadly that means that we're nearing the end of the summer as well. This morning we'll wrap up the verse-by-verse study with the last half of chapter 6. And next Sunday we'll look at a part of the church at Ephesus story that I think you'll find quite interesting. This was a significant church in the history of our faith community, and there is much said about this church and to this church that's found outside the letter to the Ephesians. God has more to say to that church, and we'll explore some of those words next week. But this morning we come to a very familiar passage that for many of us brings to mind many Sunday school memories. Uh, This is the famous Armor of God passage, which makes this a somewhat difficult passage to preach on. Because when we were kids, we got this great teaching on the armor, and it was a fun lesson, and it came with images like this one, where we learned all about the different pieces of the armor. And Then we grew up, and the uh, teddy bear soldier wasn't going to hold our attention anymore, and so our teachers moved on to a more educational approach, and we got this image, and we worked with that for a few years. And then when we were teens, we lost interest again, and the whole thing had to be made cooler for us. And who can ever forget that one Sunday school teacher who got into the lesson a little too much and we all just lost the point when he did this. And then eventually some cool Canadian pastor brought the concept to life by showing us a video of some guy writing all over his body before he goes to work. Uh, I wanted so badly to have gimmicks this morning. This is one of those passages that just tempts a pastor to go, okay, what can I do? What can I do? Can I have a, a real full suit of armor up here? Wouldn't that be cool? Um, I should show some, some great battle footage from some famous movie. Uh, maybe real swords to give to the kids on their way out. <laughs> maybe I could dress myself in armor as I preach and slay the enemy, which of course would be played by Peter. <laughs> I mean, seriously, with this hair, I'd make one striking Roman centurion, wouldn't I? Huh? <laughs> But all I have to offer you this morning is a reminder that you have ears to listen. Nothing that I say or do can make these verses any more powerful than they already are. This is one of the most inspiring passages in the Bible. And my prayer this morning is that we haven't become too familiar with this passage, so much so that we lose its power in our own lives. And so will you pray with me as we open the word of God? Father, this is it. We come once again to open your word to hear from you through the Apostle Paul in this letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus. And Lord, there is nothing, like I said, that we can do to add any power to what you're saying here. So Father, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts, open our eyes and allow us to see clearly and understand clearly what it is you're saying to us in this passage once again. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter. 
and for the opportunity to once again um, dive in and see what it is that you have for us. We commit this time to you as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. This is how Paul concludes his letter to the church at Ephesus. We'll read through verse 20, and I'll talk about Paul's final greetings in the last four verses of the letter later on in the sermon. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also with me, for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. All right, so let's review briefly. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul speaks to the believers at Ephesus about their identity. They are saints, chosen, adopted sons and daughters of God, They are rich in the riches of Christ and all that his grace has to offer. They have been blessed beyond belief with spiritual possessions and a spiritual position in Christ. They are alive. They are one. And then Paul moves on to his instruction on how they ought to live based on that identity. He teaches about unity and maturity and implores them to live lives worthy of their identity in Christ. He reminds them of their need to put off their old nature and embrace their new nature, the nature that Jesus Christ has given them, his very own nature. They're to live as children of light, as the holy people that they are. They're to submit to each other, and Paul instructs them on submission in the realms of the home and the workplace. And now he needs to wrap up his letter to the church at Ephesus. What is it that they need to hear? Based on what they've heard through the the letter to this point, what is left to be said In the most basic of summaries, Paul has said, this is who you are, this is how you ought to live, and now he says, you can do this. You can do this. And to this point in my study of the book of Ephesians, I'll admit that uh, I've seen my confidence shattered more than once. I hear Paul telling me to live a holy life. I hear him telling me to imitate God, to live wisely and maturely, to be humble and gentle and patient to love my wife with the kind of love that Jesus has for me, to make the most of every opportunity that I'm presented with, and being very pessimistic in my view of my own self and my own abilities, it's been very easy for me to walk away from my time spent in this letter and conclude that I can't do this. This is just too much. 
And now add to the equation what life was like for the Ephesian believers given their background as Gentiles and their cultural ties to idolatry and all that they'd seen around them and I'll guarantee you that their confidence was rattled as well. They need to be encouraged that they can do this but they need to be reminded that they cannot do this on their own strength. So Paul says this in verse 10. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And let me say something about the first word in this verse, finally. Finally is not the best translation of this word. The best manuscripts of this verse contain a word here that can be more accurately translated, henceforth, henceforth. And this makes sense with Paul's writing in this letter. This is not the final thing that they're to do and then cross off their list. What he's talking about is something that he wants them to do from this point on, always. Just like he said, that we're to always be being filled with the Holy Spirit. We're to always be being made strong in the Lord. God is to always be our source of strength. We are not to depend on our own strength, no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what we're facing. Now, is strong a word that's been used to describe you? And I don't mean strong-willed or strong-opinionated or strong-tempered. I'm talking about inner strength in your soul. Strength of character, strength of conviction, strength of faith. Are you known as a strong person? We're going to talk in a few minutes about where that strength shows up, but we ought to be known, we ought to be recognized, we ought to be admired as strong people. Strong in a way that connects with people's inner longings, not strong in a way that affirms the selfish desires that are found in those who have not submitted to Christ. The word says, be strong, so it must be possible. And it is, but only one way, and it's not the way of the world. It is not strength that comes from believing in yourself. It is not strength that comes from believing in your cause. It is not strength that you draw from your family and friends. None of those kinds of strength will support you under the attacks that we're about to discuss. It is strength in the Lord and in him only. See, we have a choice to make. Where do we get our strength from? Where does it come from? We can get some from our own willpower. I'm not denying that at all. We can get strength from our causes, from our families, from our friends. All of that is possible. But none of it compares to the unlimited power of the living God. Resolve can't provide that kind of power. Relationships cannot provide that kind of power, nor can religion. Nothing compares to the limitless power of God. First Chronicles 29.12 says this, Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. This is what Paul's desire was. And we draw on the strength of and he even prayed this, in the, this very thing for the church in Ephesus earlier in this letter. In chapter 3, verse 16, he wrote this, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So then Paul writes in chapter 6, verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And the enemy is now introduced. Who is this enemy? The enemy is the devil, Satan. The scripture is very clear about the existence of the devil. 
He was at one time the chief angel, the anointed cherub, the star of the morning, who sparkled with all the jewels of created beauty until he rebelled against God and attempted to raise himself to equal status with God. He first appeared in the word as a serpent, tempting Adam and Eve into the first sin. And Jesus not only spoke about Satan, but he spoke directly to him. Paul, Peter, James, and John all write about Satan as being a very real and personal being. The Bible refers to him as the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and numerous other titles. He's identified as the great dragon, a roaring lion, the vile one, the tempter, the accuser, and the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. Fifty-two times he's called Satan, which means adversary. Thirty-five times he's called the devil, which means slanderer. He has more fallen angels with him as demons and they've been tempting and corrupting mankind since the fall in the Garden of Eden. They are evil, formidable, cunning, powerful, and invisible and no human being on his own strength can stand up to them. I want to give you some examples of how Satan works, areas that we need to be on guard in to protect ourselves, to safeguard ourselves. And this is what Paul means by the devil's schemes. Here are nine ways in which he works First of all, he tries to deceive us regarding the character and integrity of our God. Our greatest strength lies in trusting God. So Satan attempts to discredit God, making us doubt our loyalty to him and stop trusting him. This is what he did in the garden. Is that really what God said? Well, he just doesn't want you to be as powerful as he is. So go ahead and eat it. That's an approach that Satan uses and he tries to get us to doubt God's ability to turn things around like our marriages, our families, our own personal lives. We doubt the Lord's ability and in so doing, we fall as victims under the enemy's attack. We do not stand strong under the enemy's attack. Secondly, Satan tries to undermine the victorious lives that we have given to us by the grace of God and create difficult lives for us, tempting us to forsake our obedience to God and to his calling on our lives. He brings persecution on God's people, pushing many people away from God in their pursuit of release from that persecution. Uh, the believers in Senegal, where we live, taught us a lot about this. They welcomed the persecution, which all of them faced, all of them. Some of them fell, and others stood strong and were used by God mightily in Senegal. And I, I read this one line that struck with me, that stuck with me in I want to pass it along to you. It was written by John MacArthur. He said, Christianity is often impotent when it is acceptable. Christianity is often impotent when it is acceptable. Thirdly, Satan attacks believers by creating confusion and falsehood regarding our doctrine. He tries to convince Christ followers that Scripture is hard to understand and can't answer the complex issues of our day. And that attack forces many believers to give up and creates vulnerability to false teaching. <clears throat> and there's been yet another of these attacks recently in the area of the reality and, of and doctrine on hell. Uh, pastors and leaders have been made to choose sides in a battle that happened because one well-known speaker released a book that was based on lies that he believes about hell. And some believers have fallen with him. Fourthly, Satan attacks by hindering our service to God the enemy cannot stand effective ministry. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul was writing about his ministry in Ephesus, and he said, 
because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. We need to be aware and alert to what the enemy is doing to obstruct the ministry of Chapel Hill Church and to what he's doing in our own lives to make us too busy, too overcommitted to the social pressure around us to become part of the force that carries out the ministry of Christ's church. Fifthly, Satan attacks believers by creating division among them. That's why Jesus prayed so hard for our unity. He knew it would be under attack. Even just learning about our identity during this series, the fact that we already are one, has been a strike back at the enemy to prevent him from causing further division and knocking us from our firm foundation. Sixthly, Satan attacks us by persuading us to trust in our own resources. In 1 Chronicles 21, there's this story about how Satan came up against David and convinced David to count his own soldiers. Now, David, if anyone had learned what it meant to to just be able to overcome with very little resources, with very little strength, as a boy, he learned that one young boy himself could mean the downfall of an entire army. And over and over again, he had seen God deliver him through this kind of a scenario with Israel. But yet here's David now counting his men to determine what they'd be able to accomplish as an army. And God was not pleased at all. How many times do we make excuses for not carrying out God's will for our lives because we're measuring our own resources? We don't have enough money to support missions or the ministry of the church. We don't have enough time to volunteer to work with the children. We don't have enough of this or that. God's resources are limitless to those who follow him. Seventh, Satan attacks Christ's followers by leading them into hypocrisy. We constantly hear the voice that tells us it's okay to not obey. Far too many Christ followers have taken on a false identity, one that is not backed up by their actions or lives. Eighthly, we are attacked by an enemy who attempts to lead us into worldliness. We get squeezed into the world's mold. In a prosperous society like our own, even in a recession, many of us fall into the traps of materialism, self-satisfaction, self-indulgence, and contentedness with the things of this world. We are deceived into falling in battle. And ninthly, in a way that encompasses all the other kinds of attacks, Satan attacks us by leading us to disobey, to not do what the book says. God wants us to be faithful to him, but how often we're not, and so we fall, and we have to get back up and fight another day. God wants us to live morally, so the enemy attacks with, attacks with immoral temptations. We're to speak the truth, so the enemy attacks us with the temptation to lie. We're to love, so we're tempted to hate. We're to be content, so we're tempted to covet. We're to live by faith, so we're tempted to live by sight, and on and on it goes. Then I want us to see something critical in verse 12. This is what the verse says, verse 12 of Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And this is so clear. There's an invisible force at work that has us engaged in a battle that we cannot fight physically. It's a battle against spiritual forces of evil. If we could see what is taking place in the heavenly realms right now, above and around this building, where Christ followers are gathered to hear the word of God, 
we would be absolutely terrified. That's the battle that's being fought. It's a spiritual one, and it's the one that Paul's talking about when he states the fact that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And so based on that reality, here's a question that I want every one of us to answer before God right now. If our battle is not against flesh and blood, then why do we blame and target flesh and blood when seeking to resolve or avenge our little struggles? Why is it that we do that? Why are we battling people when our battle is to be fought in the spiritual realm? When were we ever commanded to fight our brother or sister in Christ? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. That's what it says. If it was, Jesus would have struck dead every Pharisee or Roman soldier that made a move toward him or said something false against him, but he didn't. It's like Jesus was oblivious to the physical world during the events surrounding his crucifixion. And it's often like we're oblivious to the spiritual world when we find ourselves under attack. Who's doing this? Oh, they're going to pay. People can be so mean. We should fight back. And we lash out against flesh and blood while the real battle rages on in the heavenly realm and somebody created in God's image gets hurt in our wake as if they were the source of the attack. We need to learn how to fight with a spiritual perspective. Paul makes it clear that the battle will be there for us. The struggle is assumed in this verse, in verse 12. We actually follow God's plan for our lives. We will struggle. There will be a battle. That's guaranteed. And God's plan for us is not to avoid the battle. That's a victory for the enemy when we sit it out by being passive, another word for disobedient. We're called to war, and that war is going to be a tough one. And in the midst of that war, we are to stand strong. Verse 13 says this, Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Do you notice the repeated word, stand? We are to stand. When we've obeyed God's word and followed his plan, we're to fight the battle thrown at us by the enemy and when we've fought well by the power of the Lord, we are to stand. That word is very clearly a battle word. And I don't know about you, but I get a knot in my stomach when I think about the battles of Bible times. Those men were not driving heavily armored vehicles like tanks, warships, planes, or the like. They weren't firing heavy artillery. They faced each other on the battlefield and fought for their lives and for the lives of others. And it was vicious and bloody and terrifying. As a soldier, you stood face to face with another man and it was up to you who lived and who died. And there was rarely any consolation at all in being the one still standing when the, ba- when the battle was over. There was going to be another battle that you'd have to fight very soon and you'd face that terror all over again. That's the imagery that Paul's using when he calls us to be ready for the spiritual battles that we'll face. We're being called to stand, called to victory. God's plan is for us to stand and at the end of the ugly battle we face with temptation, with addiction, with apathy, with rebellion... We're to be the ones still standing, undefeated by our enemy. But that victory is only possible if we fight a spiritual battle by the power of God himself. So Paul instructs on the equipment that's available to us. Verses 14 to 18, he says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, 
with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Now, Paul uses this great analogy of a soldier as he writes the letter. Well, where did this inspiration come from? Um, probably from the guy that was chained to his wrist, who would be dressed in armor. He was chained to a Roman soldier while he was writing this. But he uses this brilliantly, and we could spend weeks on the potential imagery that's found in each piece of the equipment mentioned here. Uh, there, I came across one writing from the 17th century, Um, just on these verses that I've just read you right here. It was 1,700 pages long, just on this one passage. But today we're going to stick with just a brief overview. The belt of truth is the first piece of equipment mentioned. The belt held a man's tunic together so that it wouldn't get in his way. It was the point where other pieces of armor were attached, and the belt held a soldier's sword as well. And this points to the centrality of the truth in our battle, both the truth, capital T, and truthfulness. Truth is at the center of our being equipped for battle. There's no room in a believer's struggle for falsehood. The breastplate of righteousness is mentioned next. The breastplate, which included protection for the back as well, was worn to protect the vital organs from the blows of the enemy. It's a symbol of our right standing with God in Christ as well as our right living The life that we live either protects us against the attacks of the enemy, blocking his accusations, or if the life we live is not one characterized by righteousness, it can provide the enemy with easy access to vulnerable points within us in the attack. The shoes of the gospel are next. A Roman soldier wore sandals that had metal studs attached to the bottom of the soles to help assure that he did not lose his footing. The peace with God proclaimed within the gospel message is what gives us courage, the footing that we need to face the enemy's attack. And the shoes are symbolic in another way. They represent the readiness of one who's sent to share this gospel with others. And then there's the shield of faith. The shield is what protected the soldier, <clears throat> and faith is what protects us. Our faith protects us from discouragement. It is trust in God that everything is going to be all right. It protects us from lies, blasphemous thoughts, hateful thoughts, doubts, and wrong desires all thrown at us by the enemy. The helmet of salvation is next. The helmet, of course, is there to protect the head. Paul wrote earlier in the letter to the Ephesians that they now had the mind of Christ. And that's one of the things that salvation brought them was the mind of Christ. They're to claim that as a deliberate choice, choosing the mind of Christ over the thoughts of Satan that he attempts to put in their heads. And he can put thoughts in our mind, folks. And then there's the sword of the spirit. This is the weapon of offense that Paul mentions. The weapon is the word of God and it is used by the spirit to to penetrate the defenses of the enemy, to distinguish right from wrong, truth from lies. God's word has proven its power over and over again throughout history and it is amazing to me and very confusing that we would choose anything but the word of God to fight back in the struggles that we're involved in. And then amidst all the imagery of the suit of armor, Paul adds prayer to the list of tools used in the fight against the attack of the enemy. And this is the obvious one that we consistently fail to utilize. We're to pray always. We're to pray with all kinds of requests. We're to pray in the spirit and we're to pray for all our brothers and sisters. 
And please take time to consider that the people sitting all around you right now face their own struggles on a daily basis. And if their struggles are also against the principalities and powers, and they are, then our prayers are very effective in standing with them as fellow soldiers in God's army. How can you do this here? Well, if you haven't taken part in this yet, on your connection card is a spot that you can check if you want to receive the prayer letter. And it gives you many things that you can be praying about in regards to your brothers and sisters here. They need you to fight with them. And if you want to join that list, just check the box when you turn in your connection card later. Paul asks for the church at Ephesus to pray for him as well. And all I'll mention about his request is that Paul, someone that we would consider to be very courageous, is asking the church to pray that he would be fearless. In fact, he says it twice in proclaiming the gospel, and he is a very humble man. I want to leave you with three challenges as I close this message. The first challenge is regarding our identity. Which lion do you resemble? The cowardly lion from the Wizard of Oz or the Lion of Judah, who is described this way in a vision that Isaiah received from God. This is Isaiah 63.1. Who is this coming from Edom? And Edom was a, a region that represented all that was wrong with mankind at that time. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bozrah, who was the main city, the big city within that region? Who is this coming from Edom, from Bozrah, with his garments stained crimson. Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, answers Jesus, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Keep in mind, brothers and sisters, that we were made in the image of the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, And we are being transformed into his likeness day by day. That is our identity. Second challenge regards our enemy. Listen to this description of our enemy. This is the supernatural enemy who rebelled against God in his own heavens, who repeatedly tried to destroy God's chosen people and failed This is the enemy who tried to stop the birth, ministry, and resurrection of God's own son, Jesus Christ, and failed. This is the enemy of unequaled wickedness who seeks to thwart Christ's coming again and who will oppose him with desperate and unprecedented fierceness when he does return, and he will fail again. Do you view Satan as one to be feared? or one who is already defeated. And this is the third and final challenge, and it has to do with our loyalty. This image, um, I love it. It's very significant to me. It represents a soldier who humbles himself, who prostrates himself for the sake of the one to whom he is loyal. Beneath all the armor mentioned by Paul in our passage today, lies the heart of one who is willing to go to battle for his Lord. And this is how the book of Ephesians ends. Verse 21. Tychicus, the one who delivered this letter. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, 
will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. You love Jesus Christ so much that you're willing to suit up for him and go into battle. Into the battle that awaits those who are obedient to him. That's what we're going to talk about next week, this love that we have for our Savior. Where does your loyalty lie? I'm going to ask the ushers to come now and the worship team to return to the stage. As we close our service, let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning from many different angles and many different circumstances. There are those who come this morning who have intentionally stayed out of the battle, who have stayed away from their calling, who have lived safe lives instead of holy lives comfortable lives instead of lives worthy of the calling they've received. There are those who are engaged in battle right now and are feeling the effects of a powerful enemy that's taking shots at them on many different levels. They need, Lord, your power. They need your strength. Father, I ask that every one of us would come this morning with a desire to be known as strong people. I thank you, Father, for the battle that has raged on for so long, not because it's been pleasant, it's been difficult, but because in the battle your strength has been proven on many fronts. I thank you for the strength that you have given me in my own life when I've faced persecution, when I've faced difficult circumstances and you have been there and filled me with your strength and lifted me up, kept me on my feet, kept me standing strong. I thank you for the lessons that I've learned when I have fallen, when I haven't stood strong and I've realized just how inadequate my own strength is. I thank you that you do call us into a battle because you know what the outcome's going to be and you know how much is going to be accomplished by us standing strong in the midst of that. Father, I thank you that the enemy has already been defeated. That we are not to be afraid. That we are in a time when this is just the enemy's last shot at trying to, trying to get us, trying to injure us before he is completely and totally and utterly defeated. Father, we stand strong on your word this morning, knowing that your strength is sufficient, knowing that we have the victory. 
thrilled with the opportunity to encounter you in the midst of the battle. We ask you to be our strength. We ask you to suit us up for the battle. We pray that every day we will start the day in your word, in your truth, preparing ourselves for what lies ahead. Give us eyes to see, to be aware, to be alert to the attacks of the enemy. Give us the courage to stand and the wisdom to draw entirely on your strength as we stand. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your ability to provide, for your ability to guide, for your ability to forgive, for the compassion that you have on us, and for the power that you have to take the victory every single day. Stand on your promises today, and we do so as your soldiers. In Jesus' name, amen.